This project funded by the European Integration Fund, hence our contractual obligation to put the uh, European flag on the presentation. The research question for the project was to understand what the relationship between citizenship and integration is and what, to find out what we can learn about the integration processes of new citizens. As you will know, the current system that we have now is based on a series of innovations under the last government, <coughs> um, particularly the changes in 2005 which were designed to use citizenship as a lever, the, the process of acquiring citizenship as a lever to facilitate integration by providing new citizens with a strong grounding in British values and strong understanding of the knowledge of the life in the UK. And so I'm sure most of you know this, but the kind of key elements of that is the, uh, the life in the UK test, which was originally people acquiring citizenship and then people uh, acquiring indefinite leave to remain settlement, which um, is based on knowledge of both the history, culture of Britain and an idea of British values. And there's also an alternative route of ESOL with citizenship, English second language with citizenship. And so the project was really about looking six years on at that process and, and, and investigating how it's working. The core of the research was a large-scale survey of people uh, going through the naturalisation process as well as uh, interviews, in-depth interviews with a much smaller sample. This morning I'm going to be talking much more about the survey and the findings from the survey. We, we looked at the people who had a decision on their naturalisation application in the first quarter of last year, first quarter of 2010, and we've got a representative sample of that group. I should say a couple of things about our sample because of the European funding and because of the focus on, on the relationship of citizenship to integration. Some, we excluded some people from the sample, including EU nationals, people with some kind of refugee status and um, minor children. So our sample is a representative sample of people who either were successful or unsuccessful in their application for British citizenship in the first quarter of 2010, minus those groups. So the overwhelming majority of participants in our survey entered the UK pretty recently, not, not in the very recent period due to the minimum residency requirement applying. So mostly in this uh, period between 2003, 2004, 2005. It's a slightly different age profile than the, than the foreign-born population as a whole. So it's concentrated very much in this 35 to 44, 20, 25 to 34 age group. And it's slightly more women than men. The main nationalities in our sample were, as you can see, India, Pakistan, Philippines and Nigeria. Um, people came through a variety of different routes, so family reunion was one of the largest groups and then around a quarter who were coming um, here for work. We had a very large number of people who didn't fit into any of those categories, into other. Um, some of them, uh, and, and that reflects I guess the huge diversity of different immigration routes that there have been in the UK and also some people that were perhaps unclear about their immigration routes. The participants um, in our survey were the vast majority were in work of one kind or another, so 50% in full-time employment, more in part-time employment, self-employed. So, so uh, that's comparing the applicants for citizenship with foreign-born residents. You can see slightly larger percentages in full-time employment and uh, slightly larger numbers of students. And then finally, in terms of uh, who they are, 
and what they're doing. Civic engagement, there are much higher rates of civic engagement among our sample than in the population as a whole. So half of our respondents took part in some kind of public activity in the last year. And a comparison with the citizenship survey suggests that citizenship applicants from our sample have much greater levels of civic engagement than both the whole migrant population, so a quarter of foreign-born adults participated in some public initiative, so these are twice as high, twice as likely to be involved in civic activities, but also much higher than in UK-born population, where around a third of people are involved in some kind of civic activity. So it's a, it's a population who are very much involved um, in civic life. There are, within that, there are differences by demographic and socioeconomic background, but they're pretty small. Older applicants are much more likely to be involved in civic activity. So people over, uh, two-thirds of people over 55 were. Interestingly, refused applicants were much more likely to be involved in civic activity and people that had been here a long time. Other groups, um, Nigeria, people from Nigeria, people living in Scotland, people were particularly likely to be involved in civic activity. These types of things they spoke about were raising money for events, attending public meetings, being part of local action groups. And there were some, we also spoke to them about why it was for those that didn't, weren't involved in civic activity, the reasons not were usually related to lack of time, because they were too busy with work, too busy with study, or they were looking after family. In our interviews, we explored a little bit um, how people understood civic activity, and this very typical quote, a kind of idea of, of the importance of um, contributing to society, voting, and having a say in society. Most of our sample were applied through the Life in the UK citizenship test, and a smaller number did the ESOL with citizenship course. And there's some slightly, there's some interesting differences between who took the different routes. Virtually all working and student visa holders went through the test route, whereas family migrants were much more likely to take the ESOL route. Unemployment was much higher among people who'd taken the ESOL route, and in particular, people who were looking after family were much more likely to have taken the ESOL route. Higher numbers of people who took the ESOL route ended up with an unsuccessful application. And there were also variants um, among the unsuccessful applications by national groups. So people from India and from China, for example, had extremely low rates of unsuccessful applications, um, whereas other groups, people from Turkey, had much higher rates of unsuccessful application. So in order to get um, settlement in the UK, you have to go through either the Life in the UK test or ESOL with citizenship course. And the difference is essentially on the level of English that you have at the point when you are making that decision. So if you've already got sufficient level of English to study the Life in the UK handbook and pass the test, then you're directed towards the test. If you don't, then you're directed towards the course. And so the ESOL course, it's about learning English, but also while learning English, learning about the same sorts of things that the Life in the UK handbook covers around um, the history of Britain, the institutions of Britain, uh, knowing the law, knowing about rights and responsibilities. Um, and that's uh, tested, tested orally. Have, pe have, uh, have people taken the Life in the UK test? You can take it on a on sample online. It's a good uh, dinner party game. It's, you'll find overwhelmingly that uh, people that um, I've failed it twice. And, uh, <laughs> Our respondents had had, on the whole, they reported a very positive experience of the handbook and of the test. They, on the whole, reported that the handbook was useful, that they learned a lot through it, that the explanation about the test was clear, that they could understand the English sufficiently, 
um, and that the process of going through, going to the test centres was a generally positive experience. Interestingly, people that were ultimately unsuccessful in their citizenship application reported exactly the same level of positive experiences as the people that, that got their citizenship at the end. Um, there were some small differences in by national groups in terms of some of the criticisms of this question, whether they could easily understand the English. People from Bangladesh, Pakistan and China were reported more difficulties. In terms of the handbook, there were huge differences between the ways in which different parts of the handbook are rated. The design of the Life in the UK process is to kind of give people both a sense of how Britain works, but also a sense of how they can actively participate, build better communities. And it was these things, building better communities, which were rated as much less useful than the more fact-based things around, for example, how the UK is governed or knowing the law. And this was confirmed in our interviews where people, on the one hand, spoke about the value of practical, concrete facts and information, particularly about things like how Parliament works, which had been a mystery to them, but also about their rights in Britain. The things that people were very negative about were what they saw as a kind of rote learning of numbers. And we also spoke to people about the difference that citizenship had made to them. And in the literature, there's a lot of discussion about the instrumental and non-instrumental benefits of citizenship. The thing that people most spoke about in our interviews was uh, travel, freedom of movement, being able to do the ordinary forms of tourism that their peers were engaged in, particularly, for example, if their kids went on a school trip, things that were just a lot simpler once they were citizens, also maintaining connections with the home country, and a general kind of freedom of movement. But this was often connected to things like a pride in having a British passport and being able to show a British passport at the airport, being able to plan life securely. And they also spoke about that most of, they'd felt most of these, uh, most of the benefits of citizenship they'd already felt when they'd had indefinite leave to remain. So the British passport and the freedom of movement that gave you was the most significant dis difference about citizenship. But they also spoke about being able to interact with other British people on more of an equal basis and civic participation. So they were both kind of instrumental and non-instrumental things. But they all spoke in the interviews about the way that citizenship had enabled them was a kind of foundation for interaction in other elements of life. We spoke to people, so we surveyed people about, about neighbourhood, about where they lived and their sense of local belonging in their neighbourhood. In terms of where they lived, most of our participants had very stable residential patterns. Three quarters had been living in their neighbourhood for, for more than three years. And in particular, people that had been here for a long time had been living in, the neighborhood, in their neighbourhoods for more than five years. We analysed a little bit about where people live using the uh, Mosaic database, which is a, a database which categorises postcodes by the types of people that uh, most often live there, aggregating a number of different data sources. So this is kind of very much a proxy a proxy measure, but we found that people in our sample were much more likely to live in a few particular kinds of neighbourhoods. In urban terraces, in multicultural areas, in areas of social housing which were mainly inhabited by young people, and in areas, uh, in kind of urban, urban apartment sort of areas. And there were other areas such as rural communities where they were much less likely to live. Looking at their sense of belonging in local neighbourhoods, it's very similar for our people. There was a quite a strong sense of belonging, but not so different from, from other migrants or other UK-born people. 
but there were some differences within our sample around neighbourhood belonging. So people from some national groups had very, very strong sense of neighbourhood neighbourhood belonging, particularly people from Turkey, and whereas other groups had much low senses of neighbourhood belonging, particularly people from China. And essentially, it was often the case that people that came from national groups where there's a, a large number in the UK and a settled, long settled population were much more likely to have a stronger sense of local belonging. Interestingly, there were also differences in terms of local belonging by what type of neighbourhood people lived in. So the young people in high-density social housing, suburban areas with a lot of middle-income families, and terraced housing in multicultural areas were areas with, much, with very high sense of local belonging. Whereas some deprived areas and some less deprived areas that were more suburban were often associated with a lower sense of um, local belonging. We also researched, uh, we asked people how many of their friends were with people from the same ethnic or religious background. So we used the same question that's in the citizenship survey, so we were able to compare with both the UK-born and foreign-born population as a whole. And there's a very significant difference that within our sample, the people applying for citizenship much more likely both than other migrants, but also in particular than the UK-born, to be socialising with people of other ethnicities than themselves. So half of our sample were, had half or more of their, of their friends from other um, ethnic and religious groups compared to just uh, a fifth of the UK-born population. And there are a number of differences within that, so that for example, people in work and students much more likely to be socialising across ethnic lines. People outside England, in Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland. Um, and younger people much more likely to be socialising across ethnic lines. The places that people spoke about mixing were often at their uh, children's, um, children's school or college, but also in their religious groups. And people in the interview spoke a lot about the church as a place of interaction. And I think from this, there's two main patterns of interaction that we found. There's one group of people who are interacting very widely outside their own ethnic and religious community, in places like, uh, particularly in work, but also in study, and others who are interacting much more with members of their own ethnic group who are much more likely to develop a strong sense of local belonging. Finally, we asked people about their sense of national identity, their sense of belonging both in Britain and also in England, Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland. And we have an extremely high proportion of respondents who feel British a lot. And it, again, interestingly, no difference between those granted and those refused citizenship. Slightly lower levels of feeling English, Welsh and so on. A strong sense that applying for citizenship had enhanced their feeling British, but also to a lesser extent feeling English, um, Scottish and so on. And I think there's uh, also significant differences with the UK-born and foreign-born population. So among the UK-born population, much, much higher rates of people say that they feel English, Welsh and Scottish, about two-thirds of UK-born people, whereas only a tenth of, of foreign-born people. So, so the people applying for citizenship are much more likely to feel English, Scottish or Welsh than other foreign-born people, but less likely than UK-born people. On the other hand, people applying for citizenship are more likely to say they feel British than the UK, to feel British than the UK-born population. In the interviews, people, people spoke very strongly about feeling British and citizenship as a kind of concrete way of expressing that. They spoke much less about things like Englishness and Scottishness, and they also often spoke about a strong local identity, such as being a London or being from Leicester. So to conclude, 
I think the really interesting thing about the findings is that there is how little correlation there is between some of the different um, areas of integration in uh, different parts of, of life. So, for example, the very low correlation between local feeling belonging in the local area on the one hand and having friendships across ethnic lines on the other. Those two things didn't correlate with each other at all. So you can see here uh, belonging to local neighbourhood and inter-ethnic friendship. Large numbers of people had a sense of local belonging, but very few um, inter-ethnic friendships and vice versa. Looking at it in terms of neighbourhood types, it seems to be those two main patterns, the people living in some of the kind of old migration gateway areas of what Dave Robinson calls the old contact zones, were often developing very kind of strong neighbourhood association, but relatively few inter-ethnic friendships. And I think this, we can think of this in terms of social bonds in local areas. And that was particularly true of some of the long-settled national groups, national groups where there was a big, where there's a big um, population. On the other hand, in some of the kind of newer migration gateways in suburban areas and in uh, rural areas, and particularly outside England, much, much less of a sense of local rootedness, but a lot of interactions across um, ethnic lines, particularly in places like work and study. And that, in terms of the kind of social capital literature, we think of this as social bridges, bridges to, to other groups. But interestingly, both of those two, those two kind of patterns correlate very highly with feeling British. So people that have the weak local belonging and inter-ethnic friendships are very likely to feel British, and people that have the weak inter-ethnic friendships but strong local belonging are also very likely to feel British. So I think what this shows is there's more than one path to integration, there's more than one um, path to, to Britishness, I suppose. And I think the implication of this is uh, perhaps a need to reframe the integration debate to some extent, away from an idea of a linear process of where all of these different parts of life are connected, leading to a kind of you know, ultimate state of, of Britishness, but think of it more as a multidimensional series of processes which happen in different ways, in different aspects of life, at different rates for different individuals. So I think that's our, um, our main conclusion so far, is, and a need to reframe the way we think about integration.